1: This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman-Newfield. 75 years ago... The Hollywood Blacklist ruined lives, stifled creativity, and sent waves of proscription and censorship throughout United States culture. In The Hollywood Motion Picture Blacklist, 75 years later, published by University Press of Kentucky in 2022, Larry Sepler offers new insights on the origins of the blacklist, the characteristics of those blacklisted, and the probability of future proscriptions of the blacklist type. Larry Sepler is the author or co-author of numerous books, including Anti-Communism in 20th Century America, A Critical History, and Dalton Trombo, Blacklisted Hollywood Radical. He is... um, Professor Emeritus of History at Santa Monica College, California. I'm so glad his new book has brought him to our program. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. So to get started, uh, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work?
0: Well, my background is in history. Uh, I received a PhD from the University of Wisconsin at Madison uh, specializing in in French social history, um, and after I got my degree and started teaching in New York City, um, I was going to a lot of movies, thirties, uh, especially thirties and forties movies, and, and was and thought that that they were much better than the movies I was seeing currently made.
1: <laughs> so what thought, years oh, was this roughly? What years are we talking about that you were this was happening?
0: I was in New York from 1972 to 1975. And, you know, at that time, the tour theory was very popular with Vincent um, uh, Canby of, of The Village Voice. So I um, I thought, well, maybe it's the directors. So I, I, I went and picked up some books about directors and realized that they didn't really know what They, they couldn't really explain what they were doing. They just did it. And so then I, then I thought, well, maybe it's the writing. So I went and write. And then when I realized that a lot of the writers... Who were so famous in the '30s had been blacklisted, uh, and I knew I knew almost nothing about the blacklist then, and um, so I read a, a few books that had been written on the subject, but I thought they were incredibly superficial and supercilious, I and mean, really condemning these guys as sort of hacks and you know political pygmies and et cetera. But I knew enough about social history to know that people aren't prescribed if they're if they're pygmies or hacks. <laughs> My my close friend Stephen England's father stepfather had been a screenwriter, and so I said Stephen, I think there's a book here. You know, uh, we should, we need to go back to the '30s when this, when this all started, and so that's what happened. We we just started
1: um, researching and writing. Right, right. Okay. So, uh, speaking of the the Hollywood blacklist, what exactly was the Hollywood blacklist for for uh, listeners who are not at all familiar with the subject? All right. Well, a
0: blacklist is essentially a device used by employers to prevent people who are organizing unions from being hired by anyone else. So, say, person X starts to organize in the, at Acura, in the, in the Goodyear rubber factory. Goodyear fires him and then sends his name out to all the other uh, rubber manufacturers. Don't hire this guy. He's a troublemaker. And blacklists have been uh, in use in the United States since, uh, well, since the middle of the of the 19th century. The Hollywood motion picture blacklist was a little bit different. Uh, this was, we will not hire anybody who is a communist, has been accused of being a communist, until that person clears himself or herself, that is... You know, goes before the Committee on American Activities and, and gives names or, or writes a, a letter uh, to the studio uh, explaining everything about his, his or her political past.
1: Right. So, just to step back a little, you just mentioned the the Congressional, um, committee on um, uh, House Committee on American Activities. Could you uh, uh tell listeners a little bit about that committee? What, why was it created? When was it created? Um, and you know what was its its purpose?
0: It was created in 1934 by Samuel Dickstein, uh, a Jewish member of the House of Congress from New York, to investigate the increasing number of fascist um groups in the united states but the chair, the first chairperson was um john mccormick of massachusetts who began to shift the committee to any subversive group and then by the time martin dies takes over in the later 30s it's invest- it's only investigating communism but it's, it's called the Special Committee on Un-American Activities. It doesn't become a permanent committee until 1945.
1: Right. And it's often referred to as SHUAC, the House Un-American Activities Committee, but that's not uh, 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 precisely its, its uh, formal title.
0: Price one is, the precise one is House Committee on Un-American Activities.
1: Right. Or right. SHUAC. Yeah,
0: our Committee on Un-American Activities of the House of Representatives.
1: Right. right. So SHUAC is just easier to say, uh, so it very, seems to have stuck. Uh,
0: yeah, it's a very ugly acronym, which I try never to use. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right, all right, so, um, but I think one thing that that um, uh, um, I found a really interesting, and there are many things about your book that I, I, I really enjoyed, and one thing that um, it sort of helped clarify for me um, is that when people... Hear about or think about the Hollywood blacklist? They often assume that they were that the the, the people who were uh, part of the Hollywood, um, uh, the film industry who were blacklisted, were blacklisted by the government. That this was a, a a act or 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 you know a practice of the U.S. government that they formally sanctioned these people. And your book clarifies that that was not at all the case.
0: Yes. I mean, the government had no power. Uh, the, the House the right. committee had no power to fire anybody. Its power was to expose and to intimidate the employers by threat of, of, of maybe um, censorship or something to, to, to intimidate them into doing the actual blacklisting. But the blacklisters, per se, were the producers.
1: Right, and, and in that regard, what is, was the Waldorf Waldorf Declaration?
0: Well, after the Hollywood Ten had um, testified, um, well, pr- listen, prior to the October hearings, the, the the producers were not prepared weren't prepared to do a blacklist. I mean, they thought they had the situation under control. They didn't want to be told what to do. These were valuable employees. So they went into the hearings thinking, well, we'll try and finesse this and come out and then we'll go on doing business as usual. But three of, three of, the, of the witnesses got very angry and kind of obstreperous on the stand. Uh, and so the producers decided they had brought the industry under uh, disrepute. So they met at the Waldorf Astoria uh, in November after the hearings closed. And again, it wasn't clear that that's what they were going to do. They, 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 they're, they're, the problem was, how do we get this under control? What kind of, you know, get this bad publicity? Um, several of the producers, Samuel Goldwyn, for example, were, were absolutely opposed to a blacklist. But Eric Johnston, who was the head of the, of the Brewster Picture Producers Association and, and two of the counsel, two of the lawyers, said no you guys are fooling yourselves you've got to cut these these 10 people off or your movies your your box office is going to suffer so that they voted that okay we'll we'll fi- we'll fire the five who are under employment under contract we won't hire the other five and, we'll, and but we'll we'll go to the guilds and we'll say look let us have these 10 and that's it we won't go any further so that's what happened. They, they, the five who were under contract were fired. Those 10 were not going to be hired again. And they sent representatives to the various guilds to say, okay, this is it. No more. The committee, because the, interesting, the committee was getting very bad publicity because of the way they were treating the witnesses. So they decided, we'll put these 10 under contempt for refusing to answer our questions but we'll close the hearings until we get a decision on the contempt. So for four years, nothing else happened, except that these ten men were out of work and they were they were tried and convicted of contempt and went to prison.
1: Right, and another thing that I found really interesting uh, in your book was that you say that basically the the this congressional uh, committee invited. Uh, some famous, some less, uh, you know, uh, uh, famous or unknown, um, members of the Hollywood industry, to. Congress to testify about their political affiliation. And basically the question that they put to them was, you know, are you now or have you ever been a member of the communist party? Right. And it seemed like the point of the congressional hearings was to discover whether or not, you know, people were members of the communist party or what their political affiliation was. But you point out that this information was already known to the to Congress that 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 this was not a mystery; they actually knew, you know, exactly who was a member of uh, um, of the Communist Party and who wasn't. So, what was the actual point of parading these um, uh, members of the Hollywood industry in front of the the congressional hearing, in front of the congressional committee? Yeah, remember
0: there were, there were some thirty subpoenas issued, nineteen to the so-called unfriendly nineteen and the rest to friendly witnesses, um, members of the industry who they thought would expose the communists, who would say, yes, there's a real communist problem here in Hollywood. The purpose of the hearings was to intimidate Hollywood. Martin Dyes had tried twice in the late 1930s to open an investigation of Hollywood, but the, but the producers refused to cooperate with him, and they couldn't find any other members of the industry to cooperate with them. So both of those were aborted. But basically they were they thought that the industry in the late 30s was making pro-war movies to push the United States into the war. During the war they made pro-Russian movies because Russia was our ally. After the war they were making movies critical of the United States system. So that they want they wanted to censor the industry without censoring them. They wanted to force the industry to to um, admit that they had a communist problem, that the communists were the ones writing all these bad films. We'll get rid of them. We'll get rid of the social criticism. And the the ones who remain will be very careful about what they say afterwards. So it was was like a show trial. You know, um, we're
1: going to use these guys to intimidate everyone else. Right. And how many uh, people were ultimately impacted, directly impacted by the blacklist? Well, my calculations
0: are that over 320 were blacklisted. But that's. But then, of course, all the rest of their families were impacted as well. Plus, there was this gray list. And the gray list was, there was a publication called Red Channels, which came out in 1951, which listed 101 people and all their, all their so-called subversive affiliations. They weren't communists. They were just liberals who had joined various progressive movement, signed petitions, whatever. Those people um, were gray-listed, which meant they didn't have to go to the committee to clear themselves, but they had to write a letter, a very, very long, detailed letter uh, to the industry. Um, there, were, So there's 101 of them, plus their families. So I would, I'm, I'm thinking... 1,500 to 2,000 people were directly impacted by the blacklist or the gray list.
1: Right. And, and again, the people who were blacklisted were essentially barred from being involved in um, uh, Hollywood um, films, whether they're actors or writers or producers, directors, things like that. They were prevented from uh, working in Hollywood during the, the blacklist period.
0: Well, yes and no. Yes, they were, would not. They would not be hired under their own names, but writers had an advantage. They could use pseudonyms. So, independent producers who had not been signatories to the Waldorf Pact, they were glad to hire these people at cut-rate prices. I mean, say Dalton Trumbo, who was getting over a hundred thousand dollars a script, was now getting ten thousand dollars a script. So there was, a, there was a very, there was a flourishing black market um, in the industry. Um, and of course, as you, as you know, for the book, the black, it was that flourishing black market that ultimately broke the black
1: Right. And so, so um, could you, could you give us some examples of, of um, people in the film industry who were, you know, um, um, sort of directly blacklisted uh, by this process? You mean their names? Yes, yes, yes. To, to name names, as it were, <laughs> just so the audience has an idea of, of who we're talking about. Well, there were uh,
0: there there was uh, most of them were screenwriters. Um, Dalton Trumbo uh, was probably the one of the most famous. Howard Koch was 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 a very successful writer. Ring Lardner Jr., who'd won an Academy Award for Woman of the Year. Um, those were probably some. Um, Sydney Buckman uh, incredibly successful wonderful writer um, so uh, let's see um, well those are those are actually those are four of the more important ones Arthur Miller was sort of blacklisted um, but you know because he was on Broadway it wasn't it, it, it was easier for him to break through uh, Walter Bernstein among the directors um, Robert Rosen for a few, for a little bit, and then he got back on.
1: well, that, 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 that's, that's a good list to go with. Um, I'm curious. I've seen conflicting things um, uh, in some sources about Orson Welles, uh, the great um, uh, director, actor, uh, uh, radio um, uh, host. Was he blacklisted? Was he graylisted? What, what, what was the story with Orson Welles?
0: No, he was not listed at all. I mean, he was a progressive. I mean, he was very, very solidly on the left. But he had he had he had no record. He had no, you know, he he wasn't associated with a lot of these things. So he was never he wasn't subpoenaed. He wasn't grey listed. Um, an interesting sidelight is Charlie Chaplin was subpoenaed by the committee, but he wrote them a letter. He's saying, "I'm not a communist, uh, and if you bring me up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to tell you that I'm not a communist, and I'm going to criticize you publicly for what you're doing." So they.
1: With Jules and Sabina. All right. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I'm just curious about Orson Welles. I, I know he wasn't formally. Um, um, Brought in front of Congress, but I I, I read somewhere that that when um, I mean, we know this that, that Orson Welles went to Europe for for um, uh, a bunch of years and worked in Europe after World War II um, for a period of time, and some people have argued that the reason why he went to Europe and stayed there during sort of the height of his career um, uh, was in order to not be brought in front of Congress to kind of get out of the 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 clutches of Congress. I don't know if there's uh, validity to this this conjecture.
0: I've never heard that. Um, It's possible he went to Europe just to be freer. You know, the studios were not letting him do what he wanted to do. So it might have been a way just to get get away from there. You know, and also, you know, he probably couldn't have made the movies he wanted to make after the after the blacklist, you know, because um, the you know, you can count on one hand the sort of uh, critical critical movies that were made after at, in in the early fifties.
1: I see. I see. All right. Um, um, I'm curious. You you we were talking about how um, the the supposed point of these congressional uh, hearings and bringing these um, Hollywood industry people in front of Congress um, was to show to expose their communist um, political affiliation. I'm curious, what was the actual political background of the people who were blacklisted? Were they all communists? I mean, who are we talking about here? Almost all the people who were blacklisted were communists.
0: Um, They had joined the party at some point during the 1930s, some maybe a little later during the war. with the, with the exception of a few, such as John Howard Lawson, <clears throat> Lester Cole, um, Samuel Ornitz, um, they were younger men. Um, some had read Marx and Engels; some had not. Mostly, they just wanted to—they <clears throat> were—they wanted to fight fascism. They wanted to fight racism. They wanted to help build labor unions, and they thought the Communist Party was the best organization through which to accomplish those tasks.
1: Right. And But to, to be clear, um, even during the height of the blacklisting and the McCarthy um, you know, agitation, it wasn't technically speaking illegal to be a member of the Communist Party in America.
0: Well, it was actually, because the Alien Registration Act of 1940 made it a crime to be a a member of an organization that advocated the overthrow of the government, of any government. And, you know, when they arrested 11 members of the leaders of the Communist Party in, in the 1940s and put them on trial, and they they were convicted and they appealed to the Supreme Court, in Dennis versus the United States, the court upheld the Alien Registration Act. <clears throat> so, the, it, it was... A crime to belong to the party, at least according to the to the Supreme Court of the United States. All
1: right, all right. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Of um, um, uh, um, okay. So um, what I'm what I'm curious about is though the the thing that the the these Hollywood industry people were really being accused of wasn't simply their membership. In the Communist Party, but as you alluded to earlier, the allegation that these co- "quote unquote" communists were somehow subverting the films that Hollywood was producing, and that they were actually, you know, imbuing these films with political agitation that was subversive of uh, the American democratic system, you know, things like that. So, I'm curious. Um, um, to what extent was there any um, uh, validity to the charge that these uh, members of Hollywood were subverting the political, social, uh, economic and cultural structures of the United States?
0: Well, it wasn't true at all. Uh, you know, the, the producers had full control over what scripts were, were made and, and which scripts reached the screen. And what was on what appeared on the screen, so and they knew who the communists in the industry were, so in the terms of, of s- direct social criticism that of the communists, very little. Um, you know, they tried the best they could to you know um, put put some th- of their way of thinking in. You know, make sure that dialogue didn't contain you know racist terminology um, make the characters you know uh, appear uh, sympathetic etc but you, one could argue that some of the most critical movies of the 30s you know which I think were the you know the screwball comedies were not written or pre- directed by communists um, so the argument that there were <laughs> the argument they were that they were putting red ideas into scripts was a red herring if you will <laughs>
1: <laughs> to mix metaphors a little bit, uh, okay. Um, right, and what's about the the? Is there any evidence that any of those blacklisted were involved in Soviet espionage? That they were spies? That they were helping spies? That they were part of the Soviet espionage system? No, not not
0: not not at all. The um, they were they were liberals, basically. You know, they wanted to elect liberal or progressive people to office, as I said, organized trade unions, fight racism, um, um, fight fascism. And it was only when they were acting as liberals that they were effective as a group. Once they moved off that, um, as they did in 1939, as they did again in 1946, they were isolated uh, and, and their numbers decreased.
1: Right, right. And so you mentioned before um, uh, about the, the experience of, of Charlie Chaplin with the committee. I'm curious, in general, the Hollywood blacklistees have often been accused of lacking candor, of not being open about their political affiliation with the Communist Party. Do you think it was wise of them not to openly admit their party membership? Would, uh, in other words, uh, would that have helped their situation? No,
0: it just would have gotten them fired uh, more quickly. Here's the problem: the candor. They're, they're, they made a mistake. The ten, um, they should have said, "I'm not going to answer your questions because it violates my First Amendment rights uh, of, of to associate and to speak." That was where they failed because they said their lawyers convinced them to say that would hurt their appeal process. Um, So they should say, well, I'm answering your question, I'm answering it in my own way. That that obfuscated what they were doing. So their lack of candor wasn't that they didn't admit they were communists. It was that they didn't forthrightly stand on the First Amendment. Um, And those who say, well, you know, they could have come out after the hearings and stood on the porch of the Capitol and said, well, yeah, I really am a communist. But then they would just been hauled right back in. And if they admitted they were communists, they would then have been asked, can you name others? And if they refused, they would have been found in contempt. Because, you know, it, the Fifth Amendment, well, two things about the Fifth Amendment. In 1947, it wasn't clear that you could use the Fifth Amendment effectively against a congressional committee. And secondly, the Fifth Amendment is, is an admission of guilt in many respects. People take it as an admission of guilt. So they didn't want to get into that bag um, but once you start answering questions, you have to keep answering. You If you stop and you're in contempt. So the best thing would have been just said, no, First Amendment rights, and, and that, that would have been the end of it. They still would have been found in contempt, and they probably still would have been convicted, but they would have looked better doing it than they did.
1: Right. But it wouldn't have actually solved their the problem of being blacklisted and being prevented from uh, from working in their chosen profession. Right, right. Um, uh, which film industry leaders testified before the House of Representatives uh, committee um, and what approach did these uh, witnesses take with the committee?
0: Well, the fir- first two witnesses were Jack Warner and Louis B. Mayer of MGM. And they basically said, we don't have a problem here. Yeah, sure, there are communists in the industry, but we know who they are. We have them under control. None of their ideas get into our movies, and we can police this. Walt Disney, on the other hand, um, who had been, who had, you know, he had been, he'd had faced a strike of his cartoonists. He accused them of being communists. He was much more, um, you know, yeah, we, we have a problem, and, and we need your help with it. Um the other, only other uh, industry, Eric Johnston testified, and he just kind of, yeah, we, we, it's a problem, but we're still, we're, you can trust us to take care of it. And um, and Dory Sherry, who is head of production at RKO, um, was very defensive, defended the industry
1: Um Right. So it's kind of a mix in terms of how people responded. It seems like the the um, the industry leaders' own political orientations or sensibilities played a big role in terms of how uh, how they responded to to the congressional hearings.
0: Yeah, except Jack Warner. You know, Warner Brothers had been the most one of the most progressive of all the studios, and the first studio to basically tell the Germans, "Okay, throw us out if you want, but we're still going to make." You know anti-German movies, Um, but he he crawled. He basically crawled before the committee. Louis Mayer, who was a a a staunch Republican, um, you know, put on a little better show uh, than um, than Warner did. Um, Basically, they just you know these guys were apolitical. When it came to movie making, we don't want to be told what to do. Is their basic feeling.
1: Right. And so they did it seems like in a way they did they responded to the the issue of, of communists in Hollywood similar to the way that they responded to the issue of obscenity or nudity in, in Hollywood films. They said, We'll police ourselves. They they, they you know, put on the the, the codes, uh, you know, uh, for nudity or obscenity or whatever. And in the sim, in a similar fashion, they said, "We'll take care of our own communists. We'll punish them. We'll we'll sideline them. We don't want the government to formally uh, uh, force us to do that." Exactly. Hmm. Very, very interesting. Um, uh, I'm curious, how does the Hollywood blacklist relate to Jewish communal efforts to distance itself from communism?
0: Well, the organized Jewish communities, uh, uh, organized Jewish committees uh, had nothing to say about the blacklist. They they just stood way back from it because their biggest fear— Of all the agencies, was that Jewish? The Jews would be associated with communists, so they wanted nothing. They didn't want nothing to do with this particular thing. Uh, it would have. It would have. It would have. It would. They thought it would have been harmful to them.
1: Right. So basically, even though from, I mean, certainly from today's perspective, and maybe even um, at the time, um, it was clear that many of the Hollywood uh, personalities that were being targeted by the blacklist and by the congressional hearings were, in fact, Jewish, the organized Jewish, uh, the um, Jewish communities, formal organizations didn't see this as something that they should get involved in and try to protect their own co-religionists.
0: Yeah, it was. It was like it was beside the point that they were Jewish.
1: Right, right. Um, uh, speaking of, of of Jewish and and um, and Hollywood, how conspicuously Jewish were the Jewish movie executives who dominated Hollywood um, at the time?
0: completely conspicuous. I mean, they thought they weren't, they thought, you know, they were going to keep a low profile and, but they couldn't join the best country clubs in Los Angeles. You know, they, they weren't invited to the, to the, to be on the boards of, the, of, of other industries. Um, you know, the, I, I tell this um, anecdote in, in the book, but it's, you know, when um, Ben Heck became in the late thirties, became very Zionist, and he wanted to raise money for to create a Jewish army to fight World War II. And he goes around to Jews in Hollywood asking him for money. He goes to David O. Selznick. He says, "David, you know, would you give me ten thousand dollars?" And Selznick says, "Well, no, I can't because i it would make make me seem Jewish, and and one thinks I am." And Heck said, "All right, you give me you give me the names of any three people, and I'll call them up and I'll ask." What the first word they think of when they think of David O. Selznick? If all three say Jewish, you give me ten thousand dollars. And if they none of, them, and of course they all said he's Jewish. <laughs> yeah, they, they didn't. They didn't do it very. I mean, they tried very hard. I mean, you know, they didn't. They didn't go out of their way to hire Jewish actors or Jewish employees. That you know, Jewish themes were, were not prevalent in their films. In in, in the. Um, the, uh, the life of Emil Zola, the, the term Jewish, isn't even used. Um, so...
1: All right They went out of their way to avoid any mention of Jews or uh, Jewish or anything like that. And yet, as you say, they were universally known as being
0: Jewish. Yeah, they fooled no one. I mean, you know, when the there was a committee in the nineteen late nineteen thirties to investigate the pro war films, the so called pro war films being made in Hollywood. They used all kinds of, you know, dog whistle words to indicate that, you know, that these were Jews and the Jews were warmongers.
1: Wow. Um, Do you think that fears of anti-Semitism against the Jewish movie executives at Hollywood in general played a role in the decision on the part of these executives to embrace the the blacklist against uh, Hollywood communists?
0: I think so. I think the memory of what happened in the late 30s with that committee investigating pro-war films had to be re- had to be in the, in, the, in their minds, you know that if they if they didn't that they would once that you know groups would just you know, uh, I mean anti-Semitism was was still there I mean you know it hadn't gone away, so yeah I think that was there I think it was a it was a, a part of their way of thinking, but you know the people who were pushing the blackness the hardest were Gentiles, um, you know uh, Eric Johnston and and um, the the other lawyers.
1: Right, right. And, um, I'm curious, uh, um, I I remember seeing a clip of, uh, going back to Orson Welles, (laughs) someone I am very fond of, uh, there's a, a clip on YouTube of him being asked a question about Ilya Kazan, the famous, um, film director. And, uh, um, Orson Welles responds that Ilya Kazan, who went before Congress and named names, he named the names of other people in Hollywood who were supposedly members of the Communist Party. And Orson Welles said that Ilya Kazan was a traitor for doing that. Um, I'm curious. Um, uh some of the people who testified before the Congressional Committee refused to cooperate, while others cooperated and named names of, of other people who were members of the Communist Party. Uh, what do you make in terms of the morality of refusing to cooperate versus cooperating with the committee's activities?
0: Yeah, let me first start by saying I think, I think Kazan has gotten a bad rap over the years. Even even if he hadn't named name, even if he hadn't cooperated, it wouldn't have changed anything. You know that the the, the Cold War repressive machine was 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 a, was a juggernaut. One person doing one thing or not doing one thing would not have mattered at all. Um, I think he's singled out because he was the most famous, probably witness. You know, he was the most successful, um, and so people well, if he had if he had done it, the no, I don't think so. Uh, morality. I think it's it's generally, for the most part, moral not to snitch, uh, not to, not not to turn, especially when you know the people you're snitching on are not going to harm anybody, are not no threat to national security. I don't, I don't say it's a hard and fast rules. You know, whistleblowers, for example, are snitches, but they're I think they're doing a good service. So as a but as a general moral statement, you should you shouldn't rat on your friends. Um, on the other hand, you know many of the unfriendly, many of the friendly witnesses were the sole support of their family, um, and if they had been fired or lost their jobs, then their families would have been in, in dire straits. So that so it's it's a more it's a, you have a moral obligation, I think, to support your family. So what you have are contending moral values. Um, you know, many of the I think many of the friendly witnesses just were. You know, some of them really wanted to get even with, 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 with the party. I think that was true of Richard Collins, for example, uh, who, who felt he'd been seriously mistreated. Um, so when I first started the book, I was very pro-unfriendly, very anti. I'm, I'm not anymore. I, I now think you have to look
1: at each, each individual and judge their circumstances. Wow. I see. Um, So Dalton Trumbo said, uh, quote, that none of us emerged from that long nightmare without sin, unquote. Uh, What did he mean by that? Wasn't there a pretty clear distinction between the, quote, good guys who didn't name names and the, quote, bad guys who did? Well, I think Trumbo was saying without sin for the friendly and friendly
0: witnesses was they kept secret their Communist Party membership, which he thought was probably was a mistake and, and actually harmed the party. Um, they said things they they excoriated unfriendly witnesses uh, without trying to understand what they had done. I think that's mostly what he meant. You know, we I think he said, you know, we said or did things we we wouldn't have done otherwise. Um, so I, I think he's saying here we, we weren't prepared for this. We all did the best we could. Uh, some probably acted better than others, but everyone was victimized in one form or another. It was interesting, you know, Trumbull got a lot of flack from his friends for, for that speech he made. I think it was a brilliant speech. I think it was the culmination of his entire political life. Um, and if, if you go past this, the only victims part and read the whole context I think it's a brilliant speech. You know, he's asking people to, he's asking people who, who are on the left or who are on the left to come back together again, you know, to forget the past and and, and work together.
1: Right. And um, Dashiell Hammett, the writer of hard-boiled detective mysteries, including the Maltese Falcon, uh, was a committed member of the Communist Party. In fact, the columnist, Walter Winchell, Uh, took to calling him Daschle, Hammett, and Sickle. Um, What what were some of the, quote, subversive political activities uh, Hammett was involved in, and how was he impacted by the Hollywood blacklist?
0: Hammett's the most unusual of all the communists in Hollywood. There is nothing in his background that prepares one for his becoming not only a member of the Communist Party, but staying in it through thick and thin. Um Hammett was what, what I would call a radical patriot. I mean, I think he really, you know he, he enlisted in World War I, he enlisted in World War II. Um, but I think he was but he was severely critical of the country he was fighting for. And I, in, I think in 1935, he looked around and saw that things were really horrible in the country, in the world, and decided the Communists offered the best vehicle to, to make a difference. Once he joined, he was amazing. I, mean, I doubt that there was a, a a front group of the of the period from thirty five to 40, 47 that he didn't join or sign a petition or speak for or donate money to. I mean, he was <laughs> astounding. Nothing prepares you for for, for that kind of fidelity. Right. And how is he impacted by the blacklist? Oh, he's he's ruined. Um, he, he, is, he he can't get published. He, he he never was a successful screenwriter, so that didn't really matter. He um he the, the movies or movies or or radio programs based on his books went off the air. Um, he was the Internal Revenue Service dundum him over hundred thousand dollars in back taxes, so he was simply impoverished, and he was put in prison for six months, which probably destroyed the, what remained of his health. Um, so you, the blacklist effectively, I think, killed him um, slowly
1: but surely. Right, and uh, who was is Isabel Leonard? Uh, Leonard, and how did she handle her testimony before the congressional committee?
0: Isabel Leonard was one of the two or three most successful screenwriters in Hollywood. I mean, the highest paid, working constantly, always in demand. Um, But she joined the party when she was young um, and and, and not a screenwriter. uh, And and probably wasn't what you would call a serious communist. Uh, Probably didn't attend that many meetings or get involved in too many activities. Um, And then... She, you know she left the party. Uh, but of course she that uh-huh. she was in it. Um, she didn't want to testify she didn't want, she didn't want to name names, but the studio and her husband convinced her it was the best thing to do. The stu- MGM loved her and would have done anything for her except protect her if she was an unfriendly witness but under but they would keep her under and her husband, said, you know, why do you want to protect these people who you don't care about anymore, you know, who aren't your friends anymore, and subtext, who's going to support us if you do? So she reluctantly agreed to name names and cooperate. But she's the only um, unfriendly witness who categorically repented, who who categorically thought she had made the wrong decision.
1: So she felt after the fact that she should never have named those names. That's right.
0: And her career continued to block Flourish. She ended up
1: writing Funny Girl. All right. And how did she justify naming the names?
0: Well, the way most of them justified, um, I'll name people who've already been named. Um. Um, but that's that's the basic justification, uh, but she ended up naming a couple of people who hadn't already been named, and even if you name people who've already been named, you're just putting another nail in their coffin, you know. I mean, lost. I think John Howard Lawson was named close to twenty times. I mean, yeah, you know, if he had been named once, maybe he could have slipped past, but not twenty six times.
1: Right, and uh, who was uh? Ring Lardner Jr. And how did he handle his testimony before the Congressional Committee?
0: Ring Lardner Jr. was the son of Ring Lardner, who was one of the most famous writers in the, of the, of the United States in the 1920s. Um, Ring Lardner was not particularly political, but uh, at least two of his children, Ring and his and Jim, became very political. I mean, Ring went to the Soviet Union, joined the Communist Party, Jim fought and died in the Spanish Civil War. Um, Lardner was, was a very successful young screenwriter. He, uh, he as I said, won an Academy Award for or shared an Academy Award for Woman of the Year. But he was he was determined. He was going. He was there was no way he was going to be a friendly witness. And he and Trumbo were the ones who really organized the nineteen uh, and developed their legal strategy, except for that silly business about. Um, not refusing or refusing to answer. And he's famous because he was a very quiet man and he's very quietly on the stand, refusing to answer. And Jay Parnell Thomas, the chairman says to him, well, you know, Mr. Lardner, you could answer this question. It's very easy to answer it. And Lardner said, yes, yes, I could, but I would hate myself in the morning. Um, And then he was dragged off the stand. Um, So that's, um, and he's also wrote is one of the first people, blacklisted people, to write about what it was like to be blacklisted. There's an article in the Saturday Evening Post about what it was like to be on the blacklist.
1: Right. Uh, wh- what was it like to be on the blacklist, according to Lardner?
0: Well, it was it was terrible. Um, you know, you your your kids were always. Uh, Treated meanly in school. Uh, your, your wife was a became a pariah. Um, you know, in, in Trumbo and in Larger's case, they had to sell their house homes and, and move try move to Mexico to try see if they could do better. Um, you know, um, starting for some people it's having to start a completely new career. Wow. Um, it was, and, and, you're, and you know, the FBI is trailing them all the time, trying to get them to name names. Uh, it, it, it was
1: a terrible existence um, for, for most people. Um, and uh, Lardner had written a statement that he wanted to read into the record um, for the, the congressional hearing, but he was not uh, allowed to do so. What was the point of that written statement? Well,
0: all 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 of the nineteen. Well, actually, eighteen. Bertolt Brecht didn't, oh. but the eighteen who were who thought they were going to testify and criticize the committee, um, wrote statements that they wanted to read, but the committee had demanded that to read the statements before, and and they simply refused, except. Albert Malls was allowed to read his, and Alba Bessie was allowed to read half of his, only because they were getting the committee was getting such large, such criticism because they let everybody else make read statements. But basically, the statements were, this committee is a farce. You know, it's not out to do anything more than destroy freedom of speech in the United States.
1: Right, right, and you mentioned that. Um, Uh, Trumbo um, and Lardner were were friends. Uh, Trumbo was one of the most famous Hollywood um, uh, 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 screenwriters, and he refused to name names, um, as did uh, Lardner. What was the difference in how the two friends reacted to being blacklisted?
0: Trumbo was determined to break the blacklist. I mean, he came back from Mexico determined that he was going to, he was going to de- devote himself to finding a way to break the blacklist. Lardner didn't do that. Lardner was just concerned about, he moved moved to New York and was just concerned about making a living. He joined a few progressive organizations, um, but basically he was quiet. He, he just, he didn't, he didn't do much uh, in terms of outwardly fighting the blacklist.
1: All right. And... Um, how were the blacklisties presented in the media at the time and since then?
0: Oh, as, you know, as people who wrote terrible movies and only joined the party because so they would feel they were doing something in life, uh, as as subversives out to destroy the United States, um, as liars,
1: um, you know, afraid to speak the truth. Right, and did did that um, representation of them change at all after the Cold War, with the younger
0: generation? Uh, you know, starting with the New Left um, in the nineteen seventies, uh, just a whole new generation of, screen, of 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 people came of age who who were interested in movies, and and I think the big thing was there was this great. Documentary called Hollywood on Trial that was made in, I think, 1975 uh, or 76, and it, you know it, it featured a large number of the black Musties explaining what they had done and why they had done it, and they were convincing. You know, they they didn't they weren't they didn't seem like devils. They didn't seem like monsters. They seemed like really good people. You know, who had who had a, substantive people who who had tried to make some changes. And we're punished for it. So, I mean, I know that movie. I mean, I'd already decided to write the book, but that movie definitely had an impact on the way I thought. Um, and I think that was true of Nancy Schwartz, from Hollywood Writers Wars, and Victor Navasky with Naming Names. All our books came out about the same time.
1: Uh, so the, the the scholars who or, or or authors who ended up writing books about the Hollywood blacklist, you think were very much um, impacted by the documentary uh, *Hollywood on Trial*?
0: Yeah, and the New Left, the whole the whole sensibility of the New Left, um, which was you know the anti-fascism had had been a very good thing, and the Communist Party, although the New Left didn't want to associate with the Communist Party, had not been a a bad
1: necessarily a bad thing. Right. Right. And uh, I'm curious, uh, what do you think are the chances of a future blacklist in America? I think very
0: small. The blacklist is kind of a quaint, old fashioned way of getting rid of people. And there are so many better ways now. Um, you know, you, you do the, you know, the, um, um, you know, people are being uh, outed for for, for various Abusive activities and their books all of a sudden disappear from sight. Um, You know, they're not hired anymore. They're fired from their jobs Um, And so that's one reason the second is that there's so many platforms these days It's very difficult to silence anybody Um, and and the big platforms like You know YouTube Twitter um, Etc they love controversy, you know, the more controversy, the better, uh, for, as far as they're concerned. So I, I don't, I don't see, I don't see the blacklist as a problem. But I do see censorship as, as a pr- potential problem, given given the power of, of these media industries, uh, and, and the power of government. Um, so so that, that's a worrisome a thing.
1: Right, right. And also, um, in 1976, Michael Wilson, a blacklisted screenwriter, uh, had written that he hoped in the future, uh, in in the face of another blacklist, young Americans would shelter the mavericks and dissenters in their ranks and protect their right to work. Do you think if another blacklist did show up in America, young people would act um, as uh, Wilson had hoped? I don't know.
0: You know, you just don't know how you're going to act until until it actually until you're actually faced with it. I mean, the response to, you know, the killings of black people by policemen has been tremendous. Um, You know, there's the the Me Too movement. The response has been tremendous. Um, You know, if someone like Donald Trump became president again and began, you know, to... um, suppress ideas people's institutions what sort of a response that would get i don't know i think in you know in states like oregon or california new york probably a very strong response but in many other
1: states not so much so a negative response you mean that in new york and other states like new york there'd be a strong resistance to such a move
0: that's right but not you know the so-called blue states No, you know, um, so it it just depends on how it happens. You know, it could happen like what's happened in Hungary or what happened in Turkey very slowly. You know, a slow erosion of the institutions until one day you're at authoritarianism without realizing how you got there. Um, So it depends on, on, on the techniques that are used.
1: Right. Well, it certainly is a very chilling thought about how a blacklist or some form of censorship or repression might take hold in America. Um, there's so much more to talk about your book, but we're going to have to leave it there for today. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. Okay. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.